in this series we've been doing entitled Practices for Trusting God. And our, our last theme this morning is Practices for Trusting God in My Spiritual Growth. And this is a morning where you probably are going to want to jot down some notes. So you might want to get out a pen and there's that little area in your um, place to take notes. Um, if you can't or don't want to, of course, that's fine. And, and um, kind of the heart of the little pattern I'm going to give you this morning for these practices for trusting God, you can find online anywhere. Trust me, I didn't invent them. They're about 1,500 years old. So these little practices you're going to get this morning, you can find them anywhere. Just go home. I'll give you a Google, uh, uh, something to Google, and, and you can find out all you want to find out about them. So this morning, practices for trusting God with my spiritual growth. I saw a very interesting and humorous story this week. Uh, the, the story was this elderly woman had just come home from shopping, and she walked into her house and was startled by this intruder, you know, like those uh, uh, alarm, you know, uh, commercials you see on TV these days. So, so she just, like, carrying groceries in, and there's this intruder. She's startled by him. And just, you know, this guy's like in the act of trying to steal stuff out of her house. And she screams at him, stop, Acts 2.38, which is a text that says, turn from your sin. So the burglar stops dead in his tracks. And so the woman goes and calls 911 and the police show up. And the officer says to this guy, what the heck did you just stand there for? All the old lady did was yell a scripture at you. And the burglar looks at the cop and goes, Scripture? She said she had an axe in 238s. So, in my history, and I've been doing this a long time. I've been a Christian since I was 19. I've been a pastor since I was about 19 and a half. I'm 53, if you don't know. So that's 34 years that I've been doing this. And there's one thing, at least, that I've figured out. And that is that yelling scripture at each other has not helped much. Even when we've yelled it at ourselves. Now, that's not a statement that is any way meant to devalue scripture. I mean, I am a Bible guy. I was converted at Calvary Chapel. I have degrees and advanced degrees in theology. I love the Bible. I love theology. It's not a statement about the Bible. It's a statement about our interaction with the Bible. In fact, if we were honest, again, this, this is one of those things that sounds a little provocative to say, and, and I guess it is a little provocative, but if we're really honest, I think most of us would have to also admit that quiet time hasn't worked all that well. I mean, if you just get real about it, and there's reasons for this, it doesn't mean that quiet time is suspect. It doesn't mean that the scripture is suspect. What it means is if we merely interact with the Bible for the Bible itself, or if we merely set aside just a little bit of our life for quiet time and leave the, un, the rest of our life untouched, then we never truly find discipleship or followership of Jesus for the sake of others. What we need are some practices that emerge within and work within the already existing rhythms and routines of our life. That's what we're shooting for. And unless we integrate scripture that way, unless we integrate quiet time that way, we're actually never going to get very far. So, you know, if you think about our reading this morning um, from Hebrews, that growth is actually seen as something that's normative for Christianity. Remember the text said that move from elementary teaching to maturity 
move from having to be taught to teaching, move from milk to solid food. And so this morning, I want to give you just really two simple ideas. One, one key idea for pursuing spiritual growth, and it's called indirect effort. And I'll say more about that in a moment. And the second thing is, is then to give you a key practice of this old Ignatian practice. Well, what's Ignatius? It's St. Ignatius who lived in the 500s, and, and he, he developed his community of people who were trying to follow Jesus for the sake of serving their community. He gave them these sets of practices, and they're known today by this word examine, but not examine, E-X-A-M-I-N, like a test, but E-X-A-M-E-N, examine. And the examine, if you, uh, is the, think of, you know, those scales of justice. Can you picture that in your eyes, you know, that are sort of classic, or you see a scale on an attorney's desk or something, or think of gold mining, you know. We have these scales. Well, the tongue, the thing that, that, that sits on to, to create the balance and to know whether things are straight or equal or aligned or balanced or as they should be, in Latin, the tongue is called the examen. And so this, this practice, this is almost 500 years old, is simply a practice of taking the scriptures and rather than just sort of yelling them at each other, we find in them a story for a life. And then so we, we take the story of the Bible and we take our life and we just simply see how it's going with our story with reference to the story that we read in Scripture. So now, but before we get there, <clears throat> I want you to just think about this for a moment. What exactly is Christian maturity? Like, what are we shooting for? What do we even mean when we say, trusting God for my spiritual growth? What does spiritual growth even look like? Does it mean that you come to church three Sundays out of four instead of two? Uh, does it mean that you read five chapters instead of two? You know, what does is, what is Christian maturity mean? What's it even supposed to look like? What's it supposed to be like? And the first thing we need to say is that it's not mere moralisms. We talked about that last week, that sin arises out of a context. That sin simply means to miss the mark or to choose a different way than what God was choosing for us. So it's not mere moralisms. It's not simply, well, I don't drink. Or, you know, I don't go over the speed limit. It's not those sorts of moralisms. It has to do with alignment of a life. And second of all, it's not merely zero that counts in heaven. Again, just, I'm just talking to you as an old veteran now. Maybe the biggest mental block that I know that most Christians have is that they, because they think this Christian story is only or all about sin, well, then when they have a concept like grace, they think that grace has only to do with fixing our sin problem. But that is radically wrong. I mean, it is significantly and radically wrong. Just ask yourself, did God have grace before the fall? Or did he invent grace at the fall because he had a problem? No, creation is an act of grace. We sang about it a minute ago. God's intention to even have humankind is an act of grace. And so here's the way I know it works for, for most Christians. Is um, think of a thermometer, you know, the, the kind that they, you know, put on the wall, you know, like a big thermometer there on the wall that people do for like fundraising or maybe your kid goes to a Christian school and they're raising money for a new gym, you know what I mean? And every time the money goes up, you know, the thermometer goes up. Are you with me? All right, now think of a thermometer like that with reference to grace. And most of us are aware that, that when we come to Christ, we come below zero, right? What do we call that? 
sin or demerits or, you know, this penalty that we owe God. And we're all very aware that we're not at zero. We come with these big things we owe God. And we're all very clear that how do we get zeroed accounts in heaven so we get to go to heaven when we die? How does that happen? By grace. Everyone knows that. But almost no one I meet has any imagination for how do you go from zeroed accounts in heaven to a life that's thriving in Christ? How do you explain somebody like the Apostle Paul who said, I worked harder than them all? Paul said, I strive. How do you explain this guy who gave us the doctrine of justification by faith through grace, who says, I worked harder than them all? And then he catches himself and he says, remember, oh, but not I, what? The grace of God working in me. See, grace is not just to get you to zero. That same grace that created then deals with all and gets you to zero, so to speak, you know, where all your sins are atoned for, that same grace is what you're counting on for your spiritual growth. But it's not grace alone. There's an old funny saying that says, all of us are saved by grace, and many of us are paralyzed by it as well. Meaning we're just fearful that if we do anything, we're somehow robbing God of his glory, but that's not how it works. Spiritual growth is dependent on this mix between God's grace, which is always there and always available, and our participation or our cooperation with it. So how do we do this? Well, first, I think you have to understand a proper context for growth. And again, that is a story. It's not mere moralisms. When you're thinking about your spiritual growth, it's how do I align myself with this story? And again, we read this in the, in the uh, reading from Isaiah this morning. When Isaiah says to the nation of Israel, your iniquities have separated you from your God. Now, again, I think sometimes we think of that as like how we won't return somebody's calls or texts because we're mad at them. And so I'm shunning you, you know, I'm separating you, I'm mad at you, I'm, I'm not going to return your call today or I'm not going to answer that text. And I think sometimes that's the way we read this scripture, but that's not what that scripture means. This scripture means God has a will for his people and you're going in a different direction as we talked about last week. And so your sins, your missing the mark are continually separating you from God. Now, now the genius Anglican C.S. Lewis said in his book, The Great Divorce, that that's how he actually pictures eternity is that it just keeps happening like that. That hell is something in Lewis's mind is if we just get farther and farther and farther and farther separated from God and farther and farther and farther separated from each other. And that this lonely outer darkness in which there's the the constant pain of separation and loneliness from everybody is the way Lewis sees it. And that's what Isaiah is talking about. Remember what what, um, prophets do is prophets see the gaps. Prophets see and articulate the gaps. And Isaiah is simply saying, you guys are living in a story that's not God's story. And he uses really strong words like rebellion, treachery, and turning your backs. And I just want you to know that this isn't so much unbelief or wrong belief or disbelief. Notice the prophets never say something like, you guys lack an adequate theory of the atonement. The prophets never say things like, you're you're not quite articulating the Trinity right. It's a little close to modalism. I'll go home and Google modalism. But they never say stuff like that. Their, Their comments are very simple. Here's what God's up to. Here's what God's up to in creating a people to be with him in what he's up to. But you guys are living like this. I mean, all the prophets, 
major and minor, can be understood if you begin to read them this way, that they're seeing the gaps and calling the nation of Israel back to alignment with what it is that God created them to do. All right, so that's all free. That's all backdrop. Here's the big ideas. This one is not the one you write down next. Here's the big idea, the main sort of concept for trusting God with your spiritual growth. You have to engage in what the spiritual masters for, as far as we know, 17, 18, 1900 years have called something like indirect effort. And that is to say, if in the deepest part of your heart, you have this hunger for whatever, a substance, pornography, it doesn't matter what it is. If you're sitting there with your hand on the mouse and you know that you're just one click away from the most amazing titillating stuff, if in that moment you have to try not to do it, you're toast. Because most people will do it, whatever it is, a substance, it doesn't matter what your thing is. If you're constantly having to try, you're mostly going to fail. But here's what's worse. If you start succeeding by mere trying, you will probably become a really unkind, judgmental, religious Christian. Here's why. Because you're betraying your true heart. Your true heart still wants whatever that thing is. But you constantly, by this effort, make yourself not do it, and you become then really often hateful, hateful towards the people who are doing what you're trying not to do. So you say, well, Todd, what's the, what's the, what's the issue? What do you do? What you do is you strive to become the kind of man who would not objectify women for your own pleasure. That that's like not even in sort of your realm of thinking because you're, you're somebody who's serving women, just as an example. Or, or you don't strive to not clock in late, clock out early, but charge your boss for more time Because you're to be serving and loving that boss. You would never think to use them in that way. Stealing is simply using. So the big trick to Christian spiritual formation is to stop merely trying. Now, I'm not saying throw trying out. You stop merely trying, and you engage in activities that rewire your inner man and your inner woman. So that the kinds of things that were at once options to you, they they slowly become not options. Here's my, here's my favorite sort of classic story of how this works. Do you, I mean, this movie's so old. I hope you all remember. Do you remember the movie, The Karate Kid? Remember Daniel-san and Miyogi, right? Remember Daniel-san, I think he's like poor or something, and he can't afford the karate lessons, and somebody introduces him to Miyogi, and, you know, Miyogi doesn't really want to do it, but he finally says, okay, I'll do it. But he says, Daniel, I have one rule. Remember, the one rule was you cannot question my methods. Remember that? So Daniel says, okay, I'm in. And so Mayogi says, come on, Daniel, out in the backyard, and we're going to paint the fence. Remember, he shows him exactly, paint the fence, Daniel-san, just like this. And then Daniel-san finishes whitewashing the fence, and he comes into the house, and he says, okay, Mayogi, I'm ready for my karate lesson. Mayogi says, no, Daniel-san, we're going to sand the floor. And remember, he gets down on their knees, and he shows him exactly the straight strokes for sanding the floor. He says, Daniel-san, sand the floor. And so Daniel-san sands the floor, and he comes in. He says, now we got to be ready for my lesson. And Miyagi says, no, Daniel-san, out in the driveway, we're going to wax the car. Wax off. Wax off. Remember that? 
shows him exactly how to do it. And so then now Daniel-san, remember, he's out back in the car and he thinks, wait a minute, Miyogi's just using and abusing me. This isn't fair. He's not going to teach me karate. He's just using me to do all his menial jobs. So remember, he bursts in Miyogi's door and he starts accusing Miyogi of that. And he'd done the one thing. Remember, he'd broken Miyogi's one rule. He questioned Miyogi's, you know, methods. And remember, Miyogi says, Daniel-san, defend yourself. And Miyogi goes to punch him. And Daniel-san goes, wax off. And Miyogi goes to kick him. Daniel-san goes, paint the fence. And he blocks all the punches. Well, here's the deal. Daniel-san became exactly, precisely what he would dream to be through indirect effort. Not through directly learning karate, but embodying in himself what it took to do what was right at the moment when a punch was coming. That's the big secret to Christian spiritual growth that the masters have known for 2,000 years but does not sit in our sort of common public consciousness now. I mean, I've just finished writing a book for InterVarsity that is basically about the spiritual practices of the church, showing people, as I showed you last week, that if you will actually engage in the sin of confession, it will rewire your moral imagination. If you say week after week after week, Lord, let us serve you with a whole heart, it will start re-engaging and rewiring your imagination if you actually participate in it as this sort of form of indirect effort, a a way of... um, of, a, of doing things that will make you the kind of person for whom deeds of goodness and love are just natural. All right, now here we go. Here's the things you want to write down. This is the practice of examine, E-X-A-M-E-N. And examine has a rich history in the Bible. I mean, think of, think of the psalmist saying, God, search my life, investigate my life, get all the facts firsthand, you know, I'm an open book to you. Uh, think of David, uh, or excuse me, Paul, you know, said to the Corinthians, the Spirit's content to sort of flit around on the surface, but he dives into you in the depths of God. And so what examine is, is not meant to be kind of self-centered, neurotic, and religious. It's more, you know, in, in, uh, in the book of Samuel, Samuel says, thus far the Lord has helped us. And what examine is, is simply a way of saying, of, of taking God's story and taking your life and seriously, joyfully, like a journey, knowing that you're already loved, that you don't have to earn God's love by getting the examine just right. The examine is a tool for you, and it's a tool that the Holy Spirit uses, so you enter into it actually joyously. And, and, and like it's a journey helping your life to come into sort of alignment with what it is that God's doing. So in the examine, we're actually asking God simply to search our hearts. Again, as David did, think of these words of David. Investigate my life, O God. Find out everything about me. Cross-examine me and test me. Get a clear picture of what I'm about and help me shape my life around what it is that you're doing. So here's these five steps, five simple steps that I'm gonna give you and we're done. And these five steps can be done anytime, anywhere. I mean, once you memorize them and they're easy to memorize, you can do them at lunch hour, you can do them at a break, you can do them at night before you go to bed, you can do them stuck in your, tr- stuck in your car on the 405 after work. You simply do this. Number one, make yourself aware of God's presence. 
make yourself aware of God's presence. You just simply quiet yourself. You make yourself aware that God's present with you and in your world and in the people around you. And you just simply make yourself aware of that presence. Maybe letting the Spirit remind you of your story and that you're called and gifted to be a part of God's story, a part of God's people who exist for the sake of others. So number one, just become, just stop for a moment. <clears throat> make yourself aware of God's presence. Two, review your day with gratitude. And, and, it's, and this is not, the, the emphasis here isn't on review your day. The emphasis here is on with gratitude. And so as you just make yourself conscious of the, of the, of the presence of the Spirit, then you just say, okay, Lord, here are the things that I'm thankful for today. These are the things that have brought me joy and satisfaction and hope and et cetera. Number three, uh, ask for the presence of the Spirit to come. And here I always think of like John 16, you know, where Jesus said the Spirit will lead you into all truth. This is now where you're sort of beginning to drill down into yourself and your attitudes and actions, and, and some other day I'll teach you about a little trick that I do throughout the day, where you're just making yourself aware of your own feelings, your own attitudes, your thoughts, fears, anxieties. Now you're just sort of asking for the presence of the Spirit to help you do that, so that, and here's why you're asking for the presence of the Spirit. This is very important. Again, this is just old veteran Hunter talking here. I know that our tendencies, mine and yours, is one of two things, complacency or condemnation. So you're asking the Spirit to help you so that you're not, you're not complacent about where your life might be out of alignment, but neither do you start examining your life and then immediately start engaging in self-condemnation. Because that is not the point here. God gets no jollies out of condemning you. You know, God's not like up in heaven with this sardonic little giggle going on, you know, this evil little giggle going on that you're feeling bad about yourself. The, the point of God, the point of examine, again, is to sort of joyfully enter into this thing in the same way a golfer does. Like, I remember when I was taking golf lessons, I didn't get mad when a teacher said, you know, Todd, if you'll just, if you'll just adjust your grip a little bit, you will start hitting the ball straighter and farther. Well, I didn't go, that's judgmental. <laughs> Why? Because I wanted to hit the ball. And so I actually was thankful that somebody was showing me how to do it. And that's the exact relationship you want with the person to work of the Holy Spirit. Coach, guide, leader, mentor, helper, enabler, empower, inspirer of the kind of life you want to live. The Holy Spirit's only a pain in the rear when you're not actually wanting to live that kind of life. That's when the Holy Spirit can be a real pain in the rear is if you don't care about hitting a ball straight. Then, then it's not helpful and it's just sort of stupid. But if you're actually in the game and wanting to be coming the kind of person that God intends for his people to be for the sake of others, well, then when you ask the Holy Spirit to come and sort of break the power of complacency on the one hand, break the power of condemnation on the other, he's basically putting you in this river of freedom and grace and truth. All right, so number one, become aware of God's presence. Number two, review the day with gratitude. Number three, ask for the presence of the Holy Spirit. And then number four is just examine your day. And what I like to do is just take one or two things. God, why was I so fearful? Why am I so full of anxiety 
self-protection and self-preservation at the thought of my wife having a recurrence of breast cancer. Just keep it real. God, why do I get so full of neurotic, anxious fear when I think that my 25-year-old son may not become the kind of person that I wanted and dreamed of him to be? So you take the real stuff, whatever it is. But for most of us, there's so much stuff that you're going to have to pick one or two, the things that are just closest to the surface, and just say, okay, God, would you be with me in this? Because the truth of it is, I'm full of anxiety. I'm hearing rumors that they're about to do 200 more layoffs at work, and I don't know where I stand. And that scares the you-know-what out of me. And you just keep it real, and you just, at, you just start just sort of unpacking that. What does this mean, and, and you know, where does this come from? And you, you, you will be shocked at what the Lord will show you. And you know what? All this I'm teaching you, it's taking me longer to teach on it than it will take you to do it. This can all be done literally in 5 to 15 minutes. And, and, and as you begin to practice this, day in and day out, it just becomes a part of your life where you just stop to examine one or two things, You know what I would suggest? Curiosity. What if you just became curious about your emotions? What if you became curious about your judgments? Maybe you have a tendency towards racism. Well, all XYZ people are lazy. Or all ABC people are drunks. Or all ABC people are greedy. Maybe you have a tendency toward that. Why don't you just be curious about it? Don't judge yourself, don't condemn yourself, don't be complacent about it, but what if you just engaged in some spirit-led curiosity? Just said, Lord, I don't want to be that. Where the heck does that come from? And how can I be the kind of person who wouldn't see a Jewish person and go, and see a black person and go, and see a Mexican and go, and see an Asian and go, what what if I could just become a different kind of person? A spirit-led, spirit-driven curiosity. And then lastly, and we're done, look towards tomorrow. And that is, sorry, what Ignatius meant by that is Ignatius had in his mind that this was uh, not exactly like buddy-buddy, but no, like heart-to-heart. Not Jesus is my buddy, but I'm doing this heart-to-heart. This is me and Jesus heart-to-heart. And, and as I'm connecting with that, then I'm saying, okay, Lord, you know, how can I go back to work tomorrow and, and really serve my boss and quit stealing from him by punching in and out in ways that are dishonest? And you just begin to look towards tomorrow. You begin to look to a different kind of day and a different kind of person with Jesus. All right, so done. Did you get all five of them? And if you didn't, just go home and Google examine. E-X-A-M-E-N, or Google Ignatius, or Google Jesuits, Google anything like that, and you will find this, and actually you'll find a little card that you can print off, and that you can carry around with you for a while, but you can see that this is actually pretty intuitive, and you'd practice this for a week or so, and you will have it memorized, and you will have begun to engage in spiritual practices, spiritual tactics for your spiritual growth that Christians have been practicing for 50 1,500 years. This is not a fad. It may seem new to you, but this has been around 1,500 years. And if you're afraid this is Catholic and you're a Protestant, let me just tell you, you would have had to tell Ignatian, Ignatius he was a Catholic. He just thought he was a Christian. 
All right, last thing. How, how do we engage in this? I love this story of the blind man and Bartimaeus. Why? And how does that fit with this? Because right at the heart of Christian spiritual formation is faith. That kind of faith that says, I'm blind with bigotry. Now, I believe, I don't mean to spiritualize this. I believe that Bartimaeus was a real guy, and I believe Jesus really healed him. So I'm not trying to, like, diss that story and spiritualizing it. I'm trying to just include that Jesus can not only heal detached retinas or whatever he had, but Jesus can heal prejudice-filled hearts. And Jesus can heal lust-filled hearts. And Jesus can heal fear-filled hearts. He can heal all that kind of stuff, but it happens through faith. Never once do you read in the Bible when Jesus says your appropriate skepticism has healed you. Never once do you read Jesus saying your appropriate postmodern cynicism heals you. Right at the heart of all of this always is faith. Faith that if you engage in this, God will really make you a different kind of person. Thank you for listening. For more information about Holy Trinity Church, please visit us online at www.myholytrinitychurch.com.